Well, I should have uh, introduced myself earlier, sorry. My name's Cody. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, but thrilled to be, be with you on this Lord's Day to where we get to uh, talk about the resurrection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And you might be, might be here and saying, oh, this is obvious. This is the same sermon that I hear all the time on Easter. And I know the story. I get the story. But here's the thing. What's interesting here at Redeemer Church is we try to preach the power of the resurrection every single week. Every single time that we gather, multiple times throughout the week, whenever we gather as a church, we're trying to lift up the power of the resurrection, what it actually means. Because I imagine all of us in this room know the story. Uh, you, 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 whenever Macy was reading the passage uh, to us, you're probably like, yeah, I've, I've heard this, I've heard this. And in our cultural moment, whenever we're here around the Easter time, uh, we, we, get to, we get the blessing of contemplating, oh, uh, you know, Jesus and Christianity and uh, the resurrection and uh, did that really happen? Do, should we care? Does that bear any impact on my life? Because it seems like we can move and go to church and maybe ignore it sometimes. Sometimes it's impactful. Sometimes I think the story might be beautiful in some sense and other times it's just one of those other religious stories. But the resurrection of Jesus is really the, the intercore of everything about Christianity. It's, it's the nucleus of the cell, which is, which is Christianity. And we want to lift it up every single week. Because here's the thing. You might be thinking, is this just one of those ways that God was trying to show off to show that he was the greatest of all other gods of any other world religion? Was this just some kind of um, magical, magical trick that God did with uh, with Jesus by opening up the tomb and, you know, uh, having him resurrect. No, that's, that's not what we're actually talking about. And, 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 it, and if that was the case where Jesus was just trying to show off some of his power uh, in, in a really religious way, right, then, then there would be no why. There'd be no why that would be good news to you and I. But what is the good news? What is the good news of the power of the resurrection? What is the good news of this resurrection Sunday? Why do we gather? Why do we, why do we talk about this? Why do we lift this as supreme and as central in all things Christianity? So that's our question today. What is the why behind the resurrection? Why does it impact you and why does it impact me? And why is it the most important message that if it's true should impact every single person in this room, not just in this room, but in our city, nation, and world? Why did the resurrection happen and how can it have impact on me today? So that, that is our question. That is our question. Uh, some of y'all know who Simon Sinek is and he's a, kind of a leadership guru and he's been going around and say, saying a lot of things that are uh, complementary to the theme of this, this passage by saying that people don't really buy, uh, they don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And so uh, most of us know the what. What happened on Resurrection Sunday? Jesus rose from the dead, but why, why did he do it? That is the question that we have to answer today. And as a pastor, uh, I have a lot of conversations with people, and it, it usually, if you work from the, the fruit of what's going on in their life down 
to, and you drill down kind of to the root of, of the matter of why they're experiencing these things or why they have these negative emotions. If you, if you actually drill down all the way to the root of the matter, it comes down to a very uh, normative theme. A normative theme, no matter who I'm talking to, no matter what circumstance they're, they're going through, and it's this, I wish I had some form of newness. I need resurrection. I need this thing that is dead and broken in my life to be transformed and changed. I hear this all the time, if only I would have focused in school my freshman year, you know? If, if only I'd marry, married this person sooner, or, or if only I didn't marry this person maybe. And then, then my life would be a little bit better. If maybe if I was born into a different family, if maybe I had a little bit more money, if maybe I had a, a little bit more responsibility, if someone only saw the good, good things that I have uh, underneath this uh, introvert exterior that I, that I portray. If only I had a new relationship with my mom or my dad. What's the theme when you drill down to the root of all those things? Resurrection. I need newness. I need hope. I need something that is transformative. I, I need hope. I need faith. I need what Jesus has to offer in this newness of, newness of life. Because here's the thing, what's amazing about our passage today and what's amazing about what Jesus communicates about himself is he doesn't just resurrect from the dead, which is true. It's more than a fact, though. He says in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says that I am the resurrection in the life. I am. Resurrection, newness of life is found not just in the story of what I did, but in me, but in him, in him alone. He is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in him will live even though he die. And so do you want newness of life? Do you need newness of life? Is there something broken in your life that you say, if only this could be transformed, if only this could change in my life? Guess what? This passage and the idea of the, Jesus being the resurrection and the life is for you. It is for you. And you say, Cody, that actually sounds too good to be true. You mean Jesus is the culmination of all things? All the problems in my life can just be, uh, can just be settled by that Sunday school answer? Or like, what, where's your hope? Jesus, you know, like, is that, is that all you're saying? Is it that simplistic? And, and, and the answer is yes and no. Yes, in a, in a very true sense, but it, it goes even deeper. It goes deeper than that. And so if you're in this room and you're just saying, you know what, Cody, I, I, I reject that because the problem with Christianity is it seems like it's too good to be true if Jesus is the answer to everything in life. And to that I say, sure. Sure, that's the only way to reject Christianity is by saying it seems actually too good to be true. Because let's drill down and actually see what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection in the life. What does it mean? What's the power behind the story of the empty tomb? Because it, it's actually applicable to you and I right now. See, the gospel is not just good news in the past. It's perpetual good news to all of your brokenness right now. And so let me try to explain. Let me try to explain how, how this operates. 
Well, what's amazing about this passage that Macy read to us is it seems like Jesus wanted to give all these gifts after he resurrected from the dead. And that's really important. You want to know why? Because any time during the olden days, whenever a conquering king would come into the city, what he would do is he would give gifts to the people to which he conquered for. So whenever he he walked into this, whenever a conquering king would walk into the city, he would say, look, I want all these spices for you. I want all these gold for you. I want all these these people for you to to add to our kingdom. And, and, And it was evidence that I won and I won on your behalf. And now you get to experience the glory and the goodness of all that I won for you. And what Jesus gives here And what we see here is whenever he gives good gifts, it's because he conquered something. He conquered death. And he is strutting around in his resurrected body, giving gifts to the people that he conquered death for. So what are these gifts? Because the answer of what we, uh, to answer that, to that question of what these gifts are post-resurrection is what gives us the power of knowing and understanding why the, the resurrection of the Son of God is applicable to you and I today. So let's look at these gifts. Let's look at these gifts. The first thing that God gives us after he resurrected from the dead is faith. The first thing that he gives is faith. He gives the gifts of Faith, and you say, Cody, uh, wait a second. What? Faith is a gift? I thought it was something that we had to muster up. I thought it was something that we had to earn. I thought it was something that we had to produce deep within ourselves. And if you do that, what you're d- doing is you're turning faith into a work that appeases God's wrath on your behalf. And we are not saved by works. We're saved by God's grace. And so what faith is, is, is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace given to us by God. You see, Christianity is not a set of religious moral codes that you're supposed to follow. The power of Christianity isn't found in its ethics. The power of Christianity isn't found in being a way of life that works well for Westerners. It's not a worldview. It's not a worldview. What we have to see is the power of Christianity comes from the resurrection, faith in the resurrection that God gives to his people as a gift. He gives it to to us as a gift. And look, in this passage, he gives the gift of faith to Thomas and Mary and to Peter and and all of his disciples. All of his disciples. You say, Cody, I'm I'm not really convinced that faith is a... Uh, you know, faith is a gift. That doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, remember Ephesians 2? Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For you are saved by grace through faith, and this faith is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It, it says it very explicitly in the Bible that, that faith is actually a gift given to us by God, and it's one of the things that he first does whenever he resurrects from the dead is we have to know that the power of the gospel comes through faith in his resurrection. And in here, let's take Mary as a case study, as someone who has received the gift of faith. Because it's interesting that if, if anyone should have understood, if anyone should have understood that, oh, you just have faith, you just have faith and you got to muster it from within yourself, it would have been his disciples and it would have been Mary specifically, right? Because Mary, Mary had seen everything that Jesus had done. Mary had a, had a personal encounter with the Lord to where he called her by name and she became one of his followers. Mary saw him heal people. Mary was devoted to his teaching. 
Mary heard on multiple occasions Jesus explicitly say, I'm going to die at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Gentile Roman people. And then three days later, like the sign of Jonah, I'm going to rise from the dead. He said that three explicit times. And then Mary runs to the tomb, sees it empty, and what's her first thought? Oh, he did it? No! That's not her first thought. Her first thought was, I guess someone stole his body. Where is he? What, what, happened to, what happened to my Lord? What happened to his body? I came here with all these spices to, 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 do some, to, to pay honor to the death of my Savior and Lord. She didn't have faith. It didn't come from within her. If anyone should have had faith, it should have been her, but it didn't come naturally. It didn't come naturally to her. It had to be, Jesus, look, had to open her eyes and call her by name. And then whenever he, she heard the call of the Lord, when she heard the call of Jesus, what, it, what happened? She believed. She believed. And so this is something that we see in this passage is that all, all of Jesus' disciples hear this call in this beckoning towards faith, and they receive it as a gift from the gift giver, from the gift giver. And so how do we receive faith? Uh, this is my longest point. Uh, this is my longest point of the gifts uh, that God has given us, and I, and, and I think I need to unpack this a little bit. So how do we receive get faith from the gift giver? The first thing you have to do is you have to go to him, okay? That might seem obvious, but it's not obvious, you have to go to him if you want to receive the gift of faith. You have, to, uh, you have to go to the one that actually is the one that is giving out the gifts in order to receive it. You see, we look at faith like this. We think faith is something that is either innately in us or not within us, right? And we have to peer down into our own heart and see if we can muster up faith. And if you're here and you're just like, Christianity doesn't really work for me. It never has. I don't think it ever will. I tried it there for a little bit, but the faith thing never really stuck. I just couldn't believe it. And so what you're doing whenever you actually say that is you're looking at your heart and you're saying, I guess faith comes from deep inside my heart and I have to look inside my heart to receive this, to receive this faith. And what, uh, it's no surprise that this happens. Remember Tarzan, that, that, that great Phil, Phil Collins uh, song uh, that says, put your faith in what you most believe in. Two worlds, uh, one family, trust your heart. What, what is Phil Collins saying you should most believe in? Your heart, your heart. Uh, trust your heart, let faith decide to guide these lives. I'm, I could keep on singing, but no, it's a, it's a great song, all right? It's a great song, but it's really poor theology and the Bible actually doesn't teach this at all. The Bible doesn't teach us at all. We don't need to look inside of our heart and say if we can pull out the gift of faith and be like, I guess it's just not in there. My, my faith, the faith in the, the Christian God isn't there in my heart, so I guess i got to look at some other worldview. i got to look at some other philosophy. But, but that's not how you receive faith. The way that you receive faith is you have to go to the faith giver, the one that gives it as a gift of grace, not by works so that no one can boast. This is, what, this is what we see in our passage today. And if you think, no, I think faith really comes from deep from within us, and you either have it or you don't. What that is is not faith. That's self-reliance. 
That's self-reliance. You think that your faith is completely dependent upon you. You think that your, your, your faith is something that you have to white-knuckle and say, uh, I know science, my science class taught me this, but I, I, I am trying to believe, and you're just white-knuckling this self-reliance to say, I believe this ideology. And the Bible doesn't talk about Christianity or faith any, uh, like that at all, that we shouldn't have to white-knuckle through this thing. It's something that is given whenever the Lord opens our eyes and calls us by name. See, he is the gift giver. And see, Jesus wants us to have life. Doesn't this white knuckling, trying to be self-reliant faith that comes deep within our heart, doesn't that feel more like a drudgery than delight? Don't, don't you see that the, the gifts of the Spirit, Christian, is supposed to be joy, love, peace, patience? And if you're constantly trying to muster up faith within your heart and be like, oh, I keep on sinning. I guess I better go to church. I guess I better read my Bible. I guess I better pray. Oh, man, this is so hard, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on going. Does that sound like life, which is truly life? Does that sound like something that God actually wants for you? Uh, the, the Bible, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago while we were preaching through the gospel of John. But anytime Jesus talks about eternal life, it's the word zoe. It's the word zoe. He's not talking about eternal existence. He's talking about a quality of life that gives you life, which is truly life. What is that? What is that? It's living a life that is full of joy, full of peace. It's, it's living the life that you really want to live. Engaging with people the way that you really want to engage with them. With compassionate hearts, with, with gentleness, with kindness towards them. With self-control whenever, whenever you're anxious or hungry or tired. That's what, that's, what God, that's what God is calling you to. Life which is truly life. And this is given to you as a gift. As a gift by his grace. So you have to go to him. You have to go to him. The giver of the gift in order to receive it. With arms out like a child going, going before a, a parent on Christmas morning. By the way, we should probably... Uh, uh, start switching that up in Christianity. I don't know why we give gifts during Christmas. I think it has something to do with the wise men. Jesus is the one, the conquering king that brings gifts post-resurrection. So we should probably start giving gifts during Easter. That, that's neither here nor there, but uh, just consider it, parents. Just con start considering it, all right? Because here's the thing. We have to go to him with arms wide open and say, God, you gotta, you gotta give me, you gotta give me this, this gift. And you think, Cody, is that it? I've tried, like I've tried. I've tried and it, and it doesn't work. You tried what? You tried to look within? And you try to white knuckle your faith? Have you gone to the Lord? Have you gone to the Lord and said, God, I need you. I can't, I, I can't believe. I don't even know how, I don't even know what this guy up there is talking about. I can't believe. Uh, I humble myself and say, please give me this faith. Have you done that? And if you do that with a sincere heart, at the end of yourself, with no self-reliance attached to it, you know what that is? That's called faith. That's called faith. That's, that's going to him in faith and saying, God, I can't produce any faith. That's actually faith. I can't produce faith within myself. You're going to him, the giver of faith, even by proclaiming that you don't have faith. That's, that's the first step in faith because the gospel is good news. It's not good news to say, here's a bunch of Christian doctrine, go memorize it. 
Here's a bunch of Christian doctrine. Go memorize it, and then maybe you will be accepted someday. No, no, no. The gospel is good news for us, which means uh, uh, the fact that it's good news means that we cannot earn it. We cannot achieve it. It's something gifted to us even in the midst of our brokenness. In the midst of our brokenness. The gospel is good news because we don't have to earn anything before God. Christ has earned everything in our place. What he, get, what he gives us is not only faith, but he also gives us his perfect record of righteousness. So you and I can stand before God someday perfectly clean. Uh, imagine, imagine if Elon Musk said, you know what, Cody, or insert your name, I have decided to Venmo you my entire net worth, whatever that is, so $268 billion or whatever it is after he buys Twitter or whatever, you know, you know what I mean? Like whatever, uh, whatever it is, just this ridiculous amount. And you might be saying, wow, that is insane. I can't imagine someone giving me over all of their net worth. That's what Jesus has done in the gospel. He's saying everything that all of my obedience, all of my worship was perfectly, is perfectly what God desired for humanity to do, but you couldn't do it. So uh, I chose to die the death that you deserve to die, and I chose to give you my perfect record of righteousness uh, uh, to you so that you can be brought in as a son and as a daughter. You have to go to this God. He, he's the giver of amazing gifts. You have to go to him. How else do you receive the gift of faith? How else do you receive this? This is what uh, Thomas did. You have to look at his wounds. You have to look at the wounds of Jesus. The wounds of Jesus are the actions that show, are the actions that show that he actually loves you. Right? The wounds of Jesus, it, it, it could, be, could be powerful if someone came up to me and said uh, that I met today and just said, Cody, I absolutely love you. I, I love everything about you. I, I, I might be flattered by that. I was like, oh, Thank you. By the way, I'm Cody. You know my name. I don't know your name. Do you know my birthday? You know, do, do you know anything about me? Sometimes talk is cheap, right? Sometimes talk, talk is cheap, but, but Jesus does more than just say I love you. He's more than just say I love you. And um, to, to Thomas, what does he say? He says, Thomas, I, do you see your wounds? Do you see the wounds that I did for you? He then said to Thomas, this is verse 27. It says, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe, Thomas. Look, look what I've done for you. Look at, look at the, the, the power that I've done. In Isaiah chapter 49, what's really powerful about this is it's talking about what Jesus, uh, Jesus has done for his people. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, it says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even if, even if these may forget, I will never forget you. Mother's in here. Can you, can you imagine forgetting? I was like, oh, here's my baby right, right here. I, I'm like, no, no, that's impossible. That's impossible. But God says, even if they forget, I will never forget you. And so we get this beautiful picture of how he cares and loves for his, cares for and loves his people. And that, that's a, a beautiful picture. And then he goes on to another beautiful picture, and it says this in verse 16, the very next verse, Behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. Now, this takes some backstory, so I, 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 forgive me for this quick aside. 
This word engrave here, sometimes it was true that whenever a, uh, a master had a servant, he would engrave the name of the master on, on their wrist. He would, engra- he would engrave it on their wrist or tattoo it on their body so that everyone knew who this servant belonged, belonged to. But never, ever, ever in the history of, uh, of, of history would a master tattoo the name Tattoo the name of the slave on himself. Because this, what this would communicate is that the, the master was solely devoted to the servant. And that has never happened. But here's, here's the powerful thing. If that's just the picture that it's trying to communicate, then that, that would be another beautiful sentiment of what God thinks about you and I. He has tattooed the names of every single person that he died for on his wrist. But it doesn't say tattoo. It says, I have engraved. And in Hebrew, this word engraved is to chisel with a hammer and a stake. 600 years before Jesus went to the cross, you know what he said? 600 years before he went to the cross, he says, I have engraved you, your name on the palms of my hands with a chisel. And what he goes to Thomas, what he goes to Thomas, he goes, look, look how much I love you. Look at my wounds. This was for your sin. This was for, this was for uh, all that you have done to blaspheme the name of Jesus, to blaspheme the name of God. And I did this for you. I was separated for you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I, I, the way I like to explain this is it's really, really heartbreaking to see um, the breaking up of a married couple. It's always a tragedy, whether it's one, a couple of months or, or years into it. But what's rare these days is to see a marriage fall apart, say, 45 years plus into it. You might be able to think a few examples. Maybe, uh, let's let's go further, further up and further in. It would be a tragedy to see a, a marriage fall apart at 55 years, 65 years, 75 years. How could those things, how could that even happen? It's not even heard about within our culture because the, the bonds of marriage after 70 years Imagine how old they are, how much life they've lived, lived together. This beautiful picture. I can't even imagine that being broken up. And don't you understand what those holes represent? The, the, the holes in his wrist, in the spear in his side and through his feet, in the crown of thorns on his hand. You know what that represents? That represents an eternity of a relationship between God the Son and God the Father being broken up for you and for me. An eternity Perfect love, perfect fellowship that the Father and the Son had forever. And he says, I will break this off for them. I will break this off for them so that they can be received and brought in. I will have the separation that they so rightly deserve so that they can be brought into the fellowship that we have had for all of eternity. Do you see the beauty of the scars? Do you see the, the, the measure that he went, went through just, just to save you and to save me? The first thing you got to do is you got to go to this Lord. You have to run to him. And the second thing is you have to look at his wounds and understand what they accomplished. And the third thing is you got to drop all your conditions. You got to drop all your conditions. That, uh, you can't really go to him unless you drop all your conditions, right? Look what Thomas said. He's like, I will never, ever believe this. I will never believe it unless I see his scars, unless I look at his wounds and I'm able to put my hand in his side. Look what Jesus says. He says, Thomas, I'm here, man. I showed up, bud. 
go ahead. Go ahead, touch my scars, look at my side, look at my feet, look at my, look at my skull to where the, the, the thorns went in, which represented the curse of sin. Go ahead and look at it, touch it, do whatever, you, do whatever you want. And what happened? Did he go over there and do a thorough investigation? Did he go up to Jesus and say, okay, let me see, yeah, checks out? No, he dropped all of his conditions. When Jesus called him, he dropped all of his conditions. Have you been holding on to some conditions and you say I can't go to him in faith because the Lord has to explain to me how this works the Lord has to do this that or the other I will follow him if and only if this thing changes in my life those are your conditions and we all have different conditions in this room if you want to go to him in faith and if you want to grow in faith guess what you got to drop all your conditions and go before the Lord you got to run to him you have to look at his wounds and whenever you, whenever you do that, then the gift of faith will come flooding in, which is the doorway into life, which is truly life. See, all the other gifts are, are worthless to you unless you receive this gift of faith. Uh, I have four other points. They're going to go a whole lot faster. <laughs> but but you, you cannot receive them unless you first go to him, look at his wounds, and drop all your conditions. And so, uh, if that's you, I challenge you. I challenge you. Uh, have you received faith? Have you been looking inwards? Or have you actually gone to him with no conditions, no strings attached, and said, I see your wounds are for me. I see your wounds are for me. And then the gift of faith will come flooding, will come flooding in. The second thing that he gives is the gift of his presence. Christian, he gives you the gift of his presence. In verse 17, Jesus, whenever he opens the eyes of Mary in faith, he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. He says this, uh, which is kind of confusing, like why, why don't you want her to cling to you? Are you a ghost? Uh, can you not touch Jesus resurrected? Or like, what's, what's going on? No, he, remember, he's not a ghost because he, at, he asked Thomas to touch him, and later on, he ate and drank with his disciples. And so there was a bodily resurrection, according to all the eyewitnesses, eye, eyewitness accounts. What Jesus is saying to Mary is he's saying, you want to hold on to my present form right now. And don't you understand? I'm making all things new. I can be with you forever. No longer am, is my presence depended upon uh, my, my physical proximity. No longer is that the case. I am I'm the resurrected Lord who's with you forever, who's walking with you forever, who's given you my spirit to bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus has done. He's made all things new. And then he says, go to my brother's which always baffles me, right? What, go to my brothers? Do you marvel at the compassion of Jesus? What's the last thing that Jesus had whenever he interacted with his disciples? Were, were they just like Philadelphia right there, and just arms around each other, showing brotherly love to one another? No, Peter had denied him three times. Peter had deserted him. One of them, it says in the Gospel of Mark, probably Mark himself, ran away naked whenever um, things, things got a little crazy in the garden. Uh, they, they denied him. They couldn't stay up and pray with him. Uh, there was so much weakness within the disciples. And Jesus compassionately resurrected said, they're my brothers. 
They're my brothers. I love them. Don't you understand that this is how Jesus wants to relate to you? As brother and sister? Not, not with the image of your broken relationship with your brother and sister, but in this perfect, self-giving, self-sacrificing, unconditional love, saying, you are, you are a member of my family forever and ever. Have you received that? Do you, do you recognize that this is the presence that God wants for you? Have you recognized that? That the presence of God is powerful and will transform and change you? Do you know him? Do you know him this way? So let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you experiencing intimacy with the Lord? Are you experiencing intimacy with the Lord? Do you know God or you just know some things about God? Do you say your prayers or do you actually talk to God? Uh, what's your relationship uh, with God actually like? Is it something that is very Western in thought or is it intimate, dynamic, relational? Or is it just some list of moral codes that you have memorized or understood from your upbringing? How, how close is your relationship with God? Because in the resurrection, what does he do? He comes, he comes and he calls you brother and sister and he says, my friend, my, my neighbor, my lover, my bride. Do you know the Lord this way? Do you have faith or are you just a disciplined person? Do you have a lot of self-control that you've white-knuckled and mustered up and said, this is my culture, this is what I belong to? Or do you know the risen Lord? Do you talk to him? Whenever you read his word, does he speak to you? Whenever you're in prayer, do the ideas of the glory of God come in clear focus to you? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and others have been going through the motions for a very long time. I, I, I call you to faith. I call you to, to understand that the resurrected Lord wants your presence near him and dear and, and close to him. He's ever before you. Have you turned and repented? What's another gift that he gives? Another gift that he gives is his power. His power working in you. This is why we need to understand the why behind the resurrection. Look what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says in verse 22 of chapter 20. And he says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Is this evident in your life? Is this evident in your life? Are you, do you just, is your Christianity dependent upon yes ma'am and no ma'am? Or is it some form of dynamic power that is working in you to, to, to send you, to send you on his mission, purpose, his glory? Are you, are you more like Jesus this year than you were last year? That's evidence that the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God is evident in working within you. Is that true of you? Can, you? can you say with a clear conscience, God is at work in my life. He's at work in my life. I love him. I cherish him. I know him. I'm walking with him. Because this is what he, this is what he desires. He desires to work in and through you in a powerful way. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, what we see here, that he says receive the Holy Spirit, was a very rare thing. We see it in Genesis Chapter 1, right, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then the Spirit of God was the power that made humanity in Genesis chapter 2. And then it says that the Spirit of God dwelt in one place that only one person, one time a year, could go into, into the presence of, of the Spirit of God. 
It was called the Holy of Holies. They built a temple around it. No one could go in unless they did all these purifying and rich, uh, ritual things. So that, that, And it was just the high priest one time a year on the, on the day of Yom Kippur could walk in there. And, and sometimes he wouldn't purify himself and clean his heart rightly. And, and so he would walk in there and die. And so they started tying a rope around the high priest every year whenever he would go into the Holy of Holies. And this happened in the Old Testament. And then Jesus all of a sudden said, he all of a sudden said to all of his disciples, the Holy Spirit is now going to dwell in you. This is a big stinking deal. Do you get the power of this? You, who, who did Jesus say was the greatest prophet based on the Old Testament lineage? He says it. He says it very explicitly. Do you remember who it was? He said it was John the Baptist. Remember this? The, the, the Old Testament prophet, the last line of, John, uh, of, of the Old Testament prophets. Remember what, what he said about John the Baptist? He says, there's been no greater man than John the Baptist that has ever walked the earth, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. What is he saying? What is he saying there? He's saying, with you, I'm gifting you the power of the Holy Spirit. And because I'm gifting you the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you through the work of God that is dwelling within your heart, is, you have a more powerful experience that will bring life and change and, and to live out the purposes of God. Why? Just because the Spirit of God dwells within you. Do you get the power of the resurrection? After he rose from the dead, all principalities and rulers of the kingdom of the air have been defeated, and now we get to walk by his spirit through the battlefield that he has already fought for us. And we just get to go walk, walk along that treacherous path called life until we go home. Do you understand the power of the resurrection? Is it evident within your life? Whenever you read the word of God, are you coming alive? Are you listening to his voice? Or are you just trying to accumulate more Bible facts? Which is it? Is the power of the resurrection evident within your life? Here's, a here's one of the last gifts that he gives. He gives us purpose. He gives us purpose. He, he tells his disciples, he tells his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And the receiving, receiving of the Holy Spirit, every time the Spirit of God comes on them, they open up their mouths and they go tell someone. They go tell someone about the power of God working in them. Now, I think it's funny that in our cultural moment, and I don't think this is evil, especially if you belong to a church that treats evangelism or discipleship as a program that you can go through. I don't think that's evil or anything. But I think it is sad that we have delegated evangelism and discipleship as a programmatic thing that we need to do at the church. Have you gone through our discipleship program? Have you gone through our evangelism program? Listen, listen. The Spirit of God lives within those that have faith in the risen, risen Jesus. We don't need to go through a program. The evidence that we have the Spirit of God at work within us is we say like Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. Send me. I'm ready to go. You've equipped me with everything I need. The presence of God, the intimacy of God, the power of God is coursing through me and coursing through you. And that's all we need. 
Uh, we need, here am I, Lord, send me. I don't need to go through evangelism training. I don't need to go through a discipleship training. I need to say, I'm with God, I belong to him, and I'm going in his direction. Does that, does that apply to you? Redeemer Church, does that apply to you? Has the power of the resurrection, has the purpose of the resurrection, has the, has the presence of the resurrection and the faith of the resurrection gripped your heart and transformed you? Is it calling you to something newer and deeper and better? Because this is the last thing that he gives you. The last thing that he gives you. Because you might be stressed out right now, right? Being like, oh man, I need to, this, this Resurrection Sunday, I need, to, I need to step it up. You know, I need to produce a little bit more faith. Uh, there's some things I sense that are broken within my life. Maybe I need to go, go and reevaluate all these things. Don't do that. Don't do, don't do that. Don't turn your faith. Don't, don't go right back to white knuckling. And trying to, trying to muster up all this courage and all this faith so that you can go out and live, live a catalytic life for God and for people to think you're a great Christian worker or anything like that. Rest in this, the last gift that he gives, the peace of the Lord. Rest in the peace of the Lord. Jesus says, all authority is mine. And if you're here on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, and you're thinking, man, maybe I had Christianity a little bit wrong. Maybe I, I was trying faith a little bit, uh, a, a little bit wrong-headed, and maybe I haven't actually processed through what the Christian doctrine and the, the Bible is actually trying to teach. Maybe I haven't walked through that. But listen to me, God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything. If you're here now, even though you think that you've been following Jesus for a couple of decades and the, the Spirit of God is beginning to grip your heart and say, okay, now do you say with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord, here am I, send me. Send me out on your purpose. Send me out on your mission. Make me, make me a disciple who makes disciples. Make me a follower full of faith. If you're saying that for the first time, guess what? He hasn't wasted the last 20 years of your life. He's, he's brought, you, brought you to a place where you say, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the understanding of what it means to walk with you and to delight in you and to have peace in you because this is what he said. He said, all authority is his. He's the giver of faith. You couldn't white-knuckle it or muster it up. Who cares if you've been a Pharisee for the last 15, 20 years? Who cares? Jesus saves Pharisees and he brings them in for a purpose and he gives them peace. And he, and he lavishes his love on them. Do you have faith or do you have self-reliance in this room, church? Because all authority has been given to him. That means it doesn't matter how life cuts you. Whenever you are found in Christ, if life cuts you, you just bleed out the word of God. What suffering are you going through or do you know that you're going through? Do you have peace in that? Do you have peace or are you constantly saying, God, why? Why this? Uh, woe is me. Why this again? Why would you do this? Why would you allow this? This is why I don't follow you. Because you're wrecking and you're ruining my life. Do you say that? Or do you say, God, no matter what you send me through, I will follow you. The deepest, darkest pain, I, I have peace and hope in you. Is that you? I had a conversation with a young man this week whose mom's going through ah, stage four pancreatic cancer. I said, what's the last thing that you prayed with your mom about? And he said, she said the funniest thing. She said, God, thank you for giving me this cancer so that I can know you in a deeper way. 
That's what faith does. That's the gift of the, that's the, gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift and the power of the resurrection. A peace that surpasses understanding. That suffering is not an illusion in this world. Christianity actually says, no, it's very real. It's very broken. It is very hard. But I will be with you. The Bible doesn't give us coping mechanisms to get through our grief, shame, anger, fear, doubt, suffering. He gives us himself, the resurrected Savior, to say, I'm walking with you. I delight in you. I have relationship with you. I am alive. Do you know? Do you know him? Do you know him? How powerful is it that we read in our, in our call to worship that it says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God said it was his will to crush Jesus on the cross. Why? If there's ever a time that seems like God was out of control, it had to have been when the, uh, the Son of God was being wrongfully accused for the sins of the world, unjustly punished for the sins of the world in dying the death of a traitor on a cross. But if this was the will of the Lord, don't you think that it's the will of the Lord to take you and carry you through even the darkest parts of this life? Do you know the power of the resurrection in your suffering? Do you know that he's at work? Do you know that he has all authority? Do you trust him that way? I hope, and my, my, my plea for you this morning is that you consider you consider the power of the resurrection and how it can transform and change your life to where all the things that you actually want for yourself is ultimately found in Jesus. Not just Jesus in Sunday school, the, the, the crucified, resurrected one who's at the right hand of the Father interceding alive today. Do you know him? I hope you do. And if you don't know him, please tell someone. And if you sense that the Holy Spirit is working, do not quench him. Run to him, go to him, look at his wounds, and you will be saved. Let's pray.